0: Welcome everyone to the In-house Roundhouse, where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather around to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. And we're excited to be recording today in Austin, Texas, during the Association of Corporate Council's 2018 Annual Conference. This is our second year recording at the ACC Conference. We've already had some good conversations. I hope you've listened to those. We've got more coming up. So stay tuned for a good set of podcasts. Uh, Today is a little bit of a reunion. We actually have a repeat guest backed by popular demand. Um, He had a good time and people enjoyed his podcast, so Ryan Brown, uh, our Corporate Counsel for Global Operations at Rosetta Stone, has agreed to join us. Uh, We are going to be doing a different topic than Ryan talked about last time. Ryan's actually a presenter here at the ACC later on today, I believe, um, where he's going to be talking about ADA, accommodation requests, and the interactive process. So I thought, you know, the the Americans with Disability Act has been around for a while, but I still think it trips up a lot of in-house counsel. So I thought it'd be great to have Ryan on to give us a preview of some of the stuff his panel will do. We won't go into the same depth of the full lengthy panel. But as you know from uh, our prior podcast, this is kind of a quick tips focus on making sure that GCs out there are aware of the potential pitfalls, and that's what we're going to be doing. Ryan, thanks so much for coming
1: back. Thanks, Mark. It's always a pleasure to be here. And um, as I mentioned, a very lawyerly disclaimer, as I gave last time, I'm here in my personal capacity and my views do not represent those of my employer Rosetta Stone. um, But I'm happy to serve as their assistant general counsel and director of legal now for labor and employment and uh, among other things like commercial transactions. And you're right, the ADA is a very difficult issue. I liken the ADA as sort of like a game of chess, right? It's one of those things where the rules are very easy to understand, but the mastery of the law, particularly as they say, devils in the details, is something that trips up a lot of companies uh, in that area. And so we do see a number of litigation here, a lot of judge-made law, because uh, it is so fact intensive.
0: Terrific. Well, uh, I appreciate that. Let's start at some basics with with framing the issue. I imagine everyone knows what the ADA is now, but tell us a little bit bit if you could about what the law is maybe the history of the law and then kind of whether there have been any legislative changes then we'll get into some of the case law that you know in the new applications so give us just a little bit of background in case uh, someone is a brand new in house counsel and may know what it stands for but doesn't know
1: anything more about the ADA. Sure. The Americans with Disabilities Act, or as we know it as the ADA, is one of a series of civil rights acts that occurred, I believe, in the 60s, but don't quote me on that one, it may be more recent. It has been amended, I believe, very significantly in the past couple decades. Um, and it, what it does is it prohibits the discrimination of employers uh, for qualified disabilities, and so you have to do a bit of an analysis uh, as you consider a number of these things. It creates, um, it also creates the duty for employers to provide what are called reasonable accommodations, and that's where the rubber really hits the road for most employers in terms of uh, complying with this law, uh, not just the non-discrimination aspects of it, but the uh, reasonable accommodations aspects of it. And so you know there's a bit of a multiple. Uh, analysis that you go into in terms of determining whether an employee is a qualified employee, um, whether the employee is disabled, as it would be considered under the Act, and whether the accommodation requested by the um, employee would then be reasonable through a number of things which have been built out by the law in terms of what reasonable can be. Uh, the law specifically states that you know, the accommodation does not need to be provided if it would produce an undue uh, burden on the employer. And of course, as you can imagine, there's a lot of litigation and clarification from the Department of Labor uh, as to what an undue burden would be.
0: Great. I think, that no, that's a great overview. And so, you know, I think sometimes we just think of anti-discrimination, you know, practices. We can't discriminate based on race, based on age, based on sex. And it's true, you can't discriminate based on disability. But the accommodation we're going to talk about some today is an affirmative obligation that goes beyond just, we're not going to fire you because of a disability or we're not going to refuse to hire you.
1: You actually have to provide a reasonable accommodation. Absolutely, um, I, I believe where this whole process starts is, um, and where it can often get tripped up, is that most employers should develop a policy in terms of how you process uh, incoming claims. That is very helpful in terms of being a defensible, um, in the event that you are facing an ADA uh, discrimination claim for failure to accommodate, right? Which is the name of the usually the name of the claim, either in state law or federal, uh, when it comes down to it. Um, is that you educate your employees and managers as to where an employee seeking an accommodation should go to. Right. Is it a form that they need to complete? Do they need to turn it into HR? Usually it's HR that owns this process, but it could be, you know, in a managerial aspect as well. So defining that process in a very coherent way, in a very straightforward way, in terms of identifying what specifically the employee is asking for an accommodation and why they're asking for it, allows the employer uh, to then kind of adjudicate whether or not it's a reasonable accommodation along those lines. Does the accommodation process apply
0: to both new hires as well as existing employees? In other words, if I'm applying for a job, can I seek an accommodation or is it only once I've got the job, I I, I seek accommodation
1: to, to help? me do it. Right. To answer your question, Mark, I would say that the ADA applies to both areas, right? But the reasonable accommodation usually is something that's applied within the employment relation context, after you are an employee of the company and it relates to your individual job duties. Uh, I believe you can apply for it in advance, although I'm not 100% sure. The ADA does require that your application process to a company not discriminate in some way against um disabled individuals right so for example is your website and application process have an accommodation for the hearing impaired or rather probably more likely the visually impaired those parts then uh, require employees to take steps from the ada's perspective and you sometimes see a little bit about that in terms of uh, using your websites that are part of a general Audience, I was about to go down a tangent, and that probably doesn't make sense for this conversation. But I was going to talk about um, the ADA in terms of setting up. Like, so if you set up a shop, right, it's a public. There's a certain set of duties that you have to provide to the public. But there are a few cases out there that discuss that websites that are basically the equivalent of a public-facing business right, so an e-commerce website, then need to have all of the normal accommodations for any disabled individual uh, that may be applying to those uh, websites. The the Department of Labor hasn't commented on what they think about that, but there are some very creative plaintiff's attorneys, uh, and they have at least a couple district-level court decisions that may suggest that that is a line of thinking until the DOL clarifies otherwise. Uh, So the application process is something that employers should certainly take into consideration.
0: Okay, great. I know you've talked about it being an interactive process. Mm. I think it might be helpful to our listeners if you could give us like an example of an employee seeking accommodation and maybe how how that interaction would go under a properly functioning
1: policy. Right, so the ADA requires what we call an interactive process, and that's been further clarified by the Department of Labor. Uh, By the way, a lot of state laws have adopted that similar mechanism if you have a state-based ADA type of uh, legislation. So the interactive process is a give-and-take conversation between the um, employee requesting the accommodation and the employer. Usually it starts off with the completion of your formal request, the employee's formal request for an accommodation. Um, Then it's evaluated by the employer through their own processes, usually HR, sometimes HR in conjunction with the legal department. And what that states is, well, maybe you see on its face, okay, I've requested a... um, accommodation to bring my, you know, therapy dog to work, right? Right. And so that's actually our panel later today is going to address some of this upcoming new litigation when it comes to therapy pets, um, which are becoming more popular and an interesting problem for a number of employers. Right. So, So we have our request. And so I say, all right, well... Let's verify, if appropriate, the actual diagnosis. And uh, often you can have them complete a medical form, right? They have to provide some evidence to you that states that, yes, this is indeed a disability that requires an accommodation. And that often the doctor or or medical professional will state, all right, here's what I recommend as possible accommodations for this person's disability. Now, that is one thing that I always recommend to employers always have, if you're going to have a form, and many employers do, have a form that they provide the medical professional, ask them to re, uh, put more than one possible accommodation for that particular disability. And this is very important because part of the accommodate, accommodation request process is determining what the best accommodation for the employee may be that is also not an undue burden for the employer. So when the doctor then gives you a list, right, of possible right. accommodations, right, maybe the therapy dog isn't the best accommodation, right? Mm-hmm. Maybe another one would be in providing the employee with a quiet space if they have, um, I, I'm take, making up a hypothetical disability where sure. loud noises are there and, and the pet then supposedly soothes them, right? So maybe creating kind of a, a quiet space uh, in, in your company or quiet room or time may be one alternate uh, cheaper way of, of accommodating right. it.
0: Right, or just, you know, give them headphones. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and it but could you, be. But you make a great point, which is if the doctor gives a list, correct, you can have a discussion. If there's only one accommodation, exactly. it's not going to be a very interactive process to choose because there's one option that you either do or don't do. It,
1: the interactive process, sorry? Well,
0: I was going to say, but more importantly, it is that the
1: law provides that if there are multiple accommodations, it has to be something that would be reasonable if there are multiple accommodations reasonable for both the correct individual and the employer That is correct. So um, again, part of the conversations that occur in the uh, interactive process are finding an accommodation that both works for the employee and the employer it doesn't create the uh, what we would call an undue burden. Um, where the accommodation process can go awry is where the employee is only insisting on their particular accommodation right or they don't respond to your further inquiries about, other possible alternatives or confirming, you know, the existence of a disability that would be qualified under the ADA. So, in those cases where the employee has requested a specific accommodation that either doesn't meet the, uh, you know, undue burden test or is not the, you know, another reasonable alternative, in many cases the employer is in their rights to deny the request and ask the employee to start over. Frequently, you'll also another situation is that employee will engage in the, the uh, interactive process and then just leave and be non-responsive entirely. And so the law, as um, built up through the case law and through DOL regulations, requires that the employee has to participate in this, right? It can't be a one-way conversation. That's the essence of an interactive process. That's the interactive highlight gotcha. part of it. So if the employee just kind of pulls away, then the employer is in every right to just deny that particular mm-hmm. accommodation request. Now, if they come back again with and they want to apply again under another situation or the same situation, you can review it Knew then, gotcha. You mentioned therapy pets as being
0: a current area. Can you summarize some of the guidance that courts have given in the area of
1: therapy pets? When are they or where they are they not an undue burden? That's a very good question. Um, so, this is an area emerging in the law. So, I don't think that we have a, an overall consensus in the courts in many cases. What I would say, and I believe this is how the court cases that have been addressed have been approached, is again just applying the normal ADA rules, right? So if, you know, the person shows up with a therapy peacock, Right, mm-hmm. but the uh, and true story. This there, are therapy there, are th- there are therapy peacocks. I've heard peacocks. of ponies and I've heard of dogs. Therapy but. ponies. There's a number of them out there. I would say, from an employer's perspective, you have to ask: Is that the only animal? Right. Uh, is that the only method of accommodating this particular individual? Assuming again that they have a properly qualifying disability. You know, is it only my therapy peacock? Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, um, there has been a lot of discussion in the employment bar about creating a requirement to have. They pet, right? To be um, a licensed, uh, how do you say it? Uh, I'm blanking on the word for it. But a, a pet that's properly licensed and trained specifically okay. to address a particular disability. kind of, like a
0: seeing eye dog, Correct.
1: would be a, right. A, you obtain a some level of whatever
0: it is, certif- certification or licensure to say, yes, this pet is official, exactly. an official and seeing that's, eye dog.
1: That's what a number of employers have struggled with, right? So we've been used to having a seeing eye dog and a um, you know, hearing ear dog trained, you know, at high level for years now, right? This is nothing new to employers. Um, They're certified, they're well-behaved animals that behave predictably, but the idea of having a therapy pet that's not otherwise trained, that's any animal that may soothe you that you want to bring to the office, you know, to address, for example, post-traumatic stress syndrome or anxiety issues, we're trying to determine where we draw the line in that particular aspect. Certainly, we have to accommodate a disabled individual, but you know to what degree, and and that the jury is still out of there. I would recommend employers uh, look at alternatives and use that the ability to look at alternate forms of accommodation, whether that's the only appropriate pet, or or not. Of course, I've been remiss in talking about understanding what. Uh, what qualifies as a disability because that's one of the threshold sets of analysis right right right. not everyone that is stressed
0: at work is going to meet the definition of disability
1: exactly so the ADA was amended I believe more recently to address what the courts were narrowing the definition of disability so that it is very expansive right if you are perceived as being disabled even if you're not and if you have a disability that impairs one or more life, essential life functions, like seeing or walking in a certain way uh, permanently, right? And this is where a number of case law really meets the road, because what is permanent? If you have a chronic issue, right, it's there sometimes, it's not there sometimes. Most courts tend to treat truly diagnosed chronic issues as being a level of disability. But if you break your arm uh, and your arm's going to heal, that's not a disability. Where this has been very interesting in recent legislation of just this past year has been accommodation of pregnancy historically pregnancy has not been part of the ada for a number of reasons legislative and otherwise Um, the mere act of being pregnant is not a disability now the ada has always applied to complications during pregnancy that may affect the employee or the fetus but generally speaking you had no obligation to accommodate a pregnant uh, employee or nursing employee but Massachusetts and a number of states have adopted laws where they basically have applied the ADA analysis to pregnant and nursing employees. Oh, wow. And so that's new. That's very new uh, to us. It's, uh, and I can expect that a number of other states will continue to pass these. I know it's in Massachusetts. I think it's in a few other states. The federal government may eventually take it up. It's, it's fairly bipartisan. There's not a lot of opposition here in terms of either political party. So it's a matter of states where uh, certain activists have have an interest in pushing mother, mother-related mother interests um, mm-hmm. in that area. So that is one cutting edge of the law. Yeah, we're no, that's interesting. At. And again, they're
0: not saying they are disabled, but they're applying the same standards yes. from the ADA
1: in these pregnancy accommodation statutes. Exactly. Interesting. And that's led to an interesting case in Fairfax County where I live, because you had, where you see the number of these laws and interest conflict, there was a female firefighter who had complained publicly to the media and to uh, Fairfax County that the county was not giving her an accommodation for being pregnant, right? They weren't moving her off of heavy duty firefighting, right? Which is a relatively intense job. I think every firefighter would note. And so that she had, you know, advocated and tried to pressure them to, you know, adopt something along these lines. But the county came back and said that we would be happy to normally do that. However, your union contract, from a labor perspective, prohibits uh, considering pregnancy a disability and treating uh, pregnant firefighters and, uh, and, and employees any differently than than you would otherwise. And, and so, in her union contract, it explicitly said that you will not reduce, you know, a pregnant firefighter from full active duty. You know, so you get an idea of conflict of labor and employment interests in Absolutely. this kind of case. No, that's an interesting. That is an interesting one.
0: Are there other issues around either transgender or other LGBTQ issues that either implicate the ADA or are treated in a
1: way that has some of that accommodation analysis? At the federal level, no. There's, there's not necessarily a law in play. But if you're a federal contractor under the previous administration, a number of the rules that the federal government flows down to anyone that they do business with included I believe um, some uh, unisex bathrooms that would be required for federal contractors, I'd have to go back and check it. They also require that your health plans not discriminate in terms of, I believe, gender reassignment and the diagnosis of gender dysmorphia along those. So there are a number of um, transgender issues that are addressed by the government, at least the previous administration, in terms of rules it flows down to federal contractors. But in terms of legislation, currently active anyway, I'm not aware of any. That doesn't
0: gotcha. mean they don't exist. Right. But Okay, no, good. Um, so you've talked a little bit about the need for an interactive process and the need to have a policy that sets out that practice. I'm, I'm interested if you could give our other in-house listeners maybe some of the common pitfalls or particular practical kinds of areas where companies have messed up, either maybe by not having a policy or have put a policy in place that you know doesn't work right and the courts have called them on it.
1: Sure. Um, As always, I advocate to have a very clear-cut policy that you've informed your employees about, uh, either through an intranet or through postings or both. Employees can always claim that they weren't informed about the process or they didn't understand. And once you have a process, and this is very important uh, in so many areas of the law, you have to follow it consistently. So once you've done it for one employee, once you've set this process down, you can't alter it, right? And the other part is uh, don't make a quick analysis that something isn't a disability. The new, the ADA as amended and is built up by the courts takes a very, very broad look at what a disability is. Remember, it's anything that it can pair permanently uh, one or more life functions. So when you take that, that can be applied to almost anything. Alcoholism has been held by the courts to be uh, a disability. Hmm. Again, not pregnancy, but under new laws uh, that accommodate that possibility. There, obviously, mental health issues can be considered disability if they're severe and chronic enough. Um, So I would always take a very close analysis before you reject anything as not being a proper disability and again the other part is um, timely responses in the interactive process right if you go to a claim you want to show that your company has been quick and prompt and reasonable in its responses and engagement with the employee in terms of the interactive process and ideally if an employee is pulled off if they don't answer you in five six weeks you know if they give you non-answers if they don't Uh, follow the reasonable explanation, you know, requests that you've had, that definitely will provide you with a good case in terms of if you ever end up in front of the court.
0: For documentation,
1: is a lot of the interaction in
0: writing where you're already, you're necessarily going to have documentation because it's emails from the employee and back? Do you have in-person meetings? Do you recommend minutes of those meetings? Or
1: what should folks be thinking about in terms of documenting some of those interactions? I always recommend an all-of-the-above approach. Um, Being a Technology company, almost all of ours is over email, but not entirely, right? In many cases, um, an employee will meet with HR, their HR generalist, or their benefits coordinator to be on how the company is structured, and I do recommend, and I ask all of my HR folks to annotate, keep minutes of the meeting. If you think it's gonna be contentious, bring in another journalist, right? To be a, the, the active note taker, right? Similar to what you would do for an internal investigation. That way that you can um, have an interactive meeting but that it's also captured you know in case you need to prove that this occurred and this is what was said in the meeting in my experience it's always better to record these things than not record them because the employee bringing a claim is always going to say well none of these things ever happened." but and in, in fact almost every case I've worked with in that area it's well this was never heard HR never said this HR never brought me the proper forms and uh, having an HR team that is on the ball that always like records everything that is the most invaluable thing that a company can have. I mean train them, drill them, write down everything. Cause nine times out of ten, if not more, nine point nine nine, it's going to defend you well. It's going to be exculpatory evidence versus, you know, evidence that will get you into trouble if you've done your, your duty right. No, I
0: think that's a great practical tip. And and you use the word record, obviously we can talk about annotations. Right. What's your view on a literal tape recorder? You know, in let's come and talk. And there's a tape recorder on the table. Yeah, and I, record. As a general, or, 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 or today a cell phone. I use tape recorder now. Sure, it's an antiquated technology. People can simply put the cell phone out and and hit the hit memo record.
1: Um, others may have different opinions. I am very hesitant to record uh, for a couple of reasons, right? You want the employee to feel comfortable and you want the your employees, the person representing the employer, to feel comfortable as well. And a lot of people just don't feel comfortable talking honestly, you know, if there's a recorder involved. Also, there's, of course, a number of state laws, right? You would have to make sure that you go through the process if you're in a uh, two-party consent state, right, for recording. You want to make sure, sure. they've signed off on it. And if it's already a contentious process, right, then they may not do that. And rather than having HR someone keep up with all of those rules and recording right that consent process I always say it's easier not to do that it's easier just to take notes which are just as admissible in this court that makes good sense I know it's easy to
0: trip over medical information, either asking for something you're not supposed to have or failing to get something uh, that you wish you had. You you already gave a good practical tip about asking physicians to give multiple accommodation possibilities. Can you give our listeners a little guidance about some do's and don'ts in terms of making requests for medical information?
1: Right. So the the request for medical information for an ADA is a minefield. So my first advice is to consult with your labor and employment specialist. Uh, If you have one in-house, otherwise consult with outside counsel and have them give you a very defined approach because there are a number of options you do have under the ADA and there are a number of options you don't have and the line can be gray. Uh, I believe you can ask for an initial inquiry from the medical provider, but there's a number of rules as to what you can do after that. Some things you can do, some things you can't, and so much so that I want—I don't want to get into it on the okay. podcast because right. it is so nuanced that my pro tip is really just to consult with counsel on, on great anything medical.
0: Okay, sounds good. No, there are sometimes where our best advice is get qualified advice. Get qualified advice. No, and and that's that's good, and that's it's good to you know red flag that and say this is a tricky area. Um, In terms of litigation, do you have any sense of how often we're actually seeing litigation over these accommodation requests, and any tips for in-house counsel that may be either fighting it themselves as a labor uh, lawyer in-house, or perhaps engaging with outside counsel to actually fight the process?
1: Right. Uh, I would say that litigation is fairly common in this area, and it's one of those darned if you do, darned if you don't, when you try to legislate a law like this. On the one hand, the government doesn't want to make it so defined that they exclude people that they want to be included in the law or types of disabilities they want to include in the law. But with these types of laws, right, when you take that broad expansion, it's the courts, ultimately, they're going to be deciding, uh, well, in this case, does it apply to this type of disability? What about therapy pets, right, which didn't really exist as a trend when they wrote the law? So you have an awful lot of judge-made law from the judicial branch in this area, and the DOL, from time to time, listens, and they clarify certain aspects of it. So it is a a very complex area to keep up with. And again, I would always just say have a defined process, have that process checked out by outside counsel. I would suggest, and then stick to that process and record everything.
0: Great. Those are good tips. Any, um, we're, we're nearing the end of our time. Any, any final advice you would want to give uh, to folks facing facing
1: ADA concerns? Again, um, just to reiterate what I've said before, ADA is one of those employment laws that is, is very scary, and there is a lot of litigation on it. But the principles of the law are, are pretty straightforward. And if you just apply that analysis, Uh, uniformly and consistently throughout your company and you train your HR team, right? Your your HR for an in-house employment attorney such as myself, HR, they're the folks tactically implementing this policy and you can have all the good policies that you want, but unless you train your generalists for a lot of these situations and and to come and seek extra help when they're experiencing a situation that may be out of their normal purview, which ADA happens all the time you'll be good. You you may face claims, but they're going to be very defensible claims. Great.
0: Thank you very much. I appreciate that, Ryan, and I appreciate you coming back as a repeat guest uh, on the podcast. Uh, It's great. Um, If listeners have questions or are motivated to reach out to you, what's the easiest way for them to get a hold of you? Sure. Uh, You're always welcome to email me at rbrown at rosettastone.com. Terrific. Thank you. And listeners, I remind you that if you want to subscribe to the In-House Roundhouse, you can do so at iTunes, Google Play, or on SoundCloud. You can also find our previous episodes on the Womble Dickinson website. If you enjoyed this episode, I'd encourage you to give us uh, a review and tell your friends about In-House Roundhouse. Uh, Also, be sure to listen to the other ones we're recording from this special Austin ACC conference. Thanks for listening. I look forward to seeing you at the next station.